to be with you all this morning. I mentioned in the Sunday school hour that I'm an honorary southerner. I married into the south and then stole my wife and ran away. But uh, it is a joy to be back here and, uh, and to be able to share God's word with you, to speak to you about that which is most important. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. I've been preaching in my own church in the book of Hebrews for about, it'll be three years this summer. And we're just reaching the end, and the end of the book of Hebrews is a beautiful, beautiful area. I'm going to be preaching this morning on verses 1 and 2, but for the sake of context, I, want to, I actually want to read the last verse of chapter 12. So we're in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, reading down through 13. Verse 2. Let us hear the word of God. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. May God bless this, the reading of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, Lord, for all that you do in and through and for your people. Lord, we ask that you would be with us now as we come to the preaching of your word. Lord, we have rejoiced in song at your grace and mercy. Lord, we have sought you in prayer and cast our cares before you, confessing our sins and exalting your name, but now we come to hear your word proclaimed, the truth of your law and your gospel, and Lord, we ask that you would guide your servant and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place and make yourself known in such a way that those who are here would know they have heard from the living God, that they might give all praise and honor and glory to you that you would hide your servant behind the cross so that they would give praise to you and to you alone. For you alone are worthy. These things we pray in the name of your Son, our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Love is one of those loaded words that we find ourselves almost incapable of extricating from its cultural fabric. You'll hear the word love thrown around in music and in arts, in television, in, vo- in movies, in literature, in any format that we interact with people, you'll hear the word love. Certainly within... Sir, is that me? All right. Certainly within the context of our culture, we have to be conscious about how that word love is being used. Because we hear it so often and so exhaustively in inappropriate contexts that we begin to believe that it is the things that the world says it is. That love is a, is a splendid thing. That all you need is love. But what we want to examine today is the way in which love occurs in its proper context. We want to know what love really is, because this passage is dealing with love. The title of the sermon this morning is Love Within and Love Without. And so as we look at love, we first have to unstitch it from its fabric in this cultural context, because it never fit there in the first place. You hear people talk about love in the world, but they're talking about love insofar as it serves my benefits. Love insofar as it is comfortable for me, or appropriate for me, or casual for me, which is entirely opposed to the concept of love. Love is selfless. Love is pure. Love does not boast. 
And it doesn't take long in examining love in this world to find that that is not at all the way that people view love. So we're going to unstitch love from this world this morning. And we're going to place it in a scriptural context. We're going to examine it in light of the way in which God does love. If you want to know how to accomplish anything, the first thing that you do is you go and you observe the master. If you go into art museums, you'll find art students sitting there and sketching the paintings that are in front of them and trying to grasp the technique and the style and the mastery of how it is done perfectly, how it is done masterfully, how it is done beautifully, and then they go home and they attempt to do it themselves. So this morning we're going to look at how God loves and how God commands us to love. And then we're going to go out into the world and try to do it ourselves. In Matthew chapter 22 Verses 36 through 40. It says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord, with all, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So how do sinners loved by God love sinners around them? That's our question this morning. And I want to deal with it in the course of three points. The first is transition. The second is love within. And the third is love without. So transition, love within, and love without. First, I want to deal with the transition because we have an abrupt shift that's taking place here. Remember, the book of Hebrews was a letter. It was written without verses and without chapter markings. And so the author of Hebrews is is writing and he says, For our God is a consuming fire. And then without any transition whatsoever says, Let brotherly love continue. And for us, it seems like this abrupt shift, like we've changed gears and gone in a completely different direction. And indeed, chapters 1 through 12 have all been about exhorta- about these, uh, these doctrinal concepts, these deep theological principles, the things that men sit in their studies and meditate on and ponder over. And then suddenly when we, <coughs> when we hit chapter 13... It's all of these scattered exhortations, these commands that are given to the people, and then a benediction. And oftentimes people assume that these exhortations have nothing to do with one another. But they're all based on the things that were stated before. The way in which Hebrews has been laying the foundation for the supremacy of Christ and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by works, not by Moses, not by Abraham, not by anything but Christ. Because the Hebrews were tempted to go back out into Judaism. They were being pressed on all sides to abandon Christianity. And to go back to rituals and sacrifice. And priests that they could see with their own two eyes. And the book of Hebrews itself is both a letter and a sermon. And as you've seen in many sermons, the, author, the, the preacher will go from all of this doctrine and laying the concept and laying the groundwork and then he closes with the exhortation, with the commands of Scripture. This is what you do with the things that I have told you. And the, he, the book of Hebrews is very much that way. What do we do with the concept that Christ is supreme? What do we do with an understanding that God loved us when we were absolutely unlovable? What do I do with that? How do I react to that? And it begins, let brotherly love continue. Love your brothers and love strangers. And it's important that we understand both concepts that are present here. The movement from doctrine and concepts and statements about God 
about who God is, about who man is, and about how man is saved, to the commands, to the exhortations, moving really from gospel to law in a sense. And it's a doctrine without exhortation that leaves us puffed up and unproductive. If I just give you lots of information and I don't give you any instruction on how to apply that in your lives, you can all just go out of the room going, yes, yes, that's very wise, very intelligent. I know things now. I have concepts. I have big theological words that I can use to confuse people. I can even teach you Latin words. That's how you really confuse people. Get all the Latin terminology down and go out and just tell it to people. And then they have to believe whatever you say because they don't know what you're talking about. Doctrine without exhortation leaves us puffed up but unproductive. We don't accomplish anything. But on the other hand, if I just give you exhortation, if I just tell you do these things and live, then, it le- then we lose sight of the gospel. We lose sight of how it is we have been saved. And we begin to drift off into legalism. And we begin to believe that those things have actually saved us. So we want to balance these principles carefully. And we also want to understand that 13, 1 through 2 is taking place in a context, not just of all of the doctrine about the supremacy of Christ and how man is saved through Christ, but also in light of the immediately preceding verse. It's not as strange a shift as it immediately seems. There's a connection between this statement, our God is a consuming fire, and let brotherly love continue. There really is. Because when we know God, we know His sovereignty, we know His justice, we know His holiness, we know His wrath. We understand what all of that is. And when we understand that God's justice and wrath transcend us, it leaves us free to love sinners. What impedes you in loving sinners? How often have you said in the depths of your heart, as you began to engage with someone, as you began to try to love someone, that your heart cried out and said, but this person's a sinner. Look at these sins that they've done. Look at these things that that justice requires satisfaction. How many of us have, in not so severe terms, thought that in our own hearts and our marriages? I can't just go out and love my wife with abandon until she has rectified what she has done. I can't love my husband until he admits what he has done. I'm sure my wife is thought that so many times. But when we understand that it is God who accomplishes justice, when we know that God is a consuming fire, and that either the sins of that person that we are trying to love will be satisfied in hell, in eternal damnation and unending torture, or it has been satisfied by Christ on the cross, then we're set free to actually love sinners. To love sinners with that kind of abandon that Christ describes in the Gospels. The kind of reckless love that we see in the New Testament. If I come home from the end of a day, and my wife has been home with our children, my wife Nanny is, and so she actually keeps other kids in the home along with ours. And if I come home at the end of the day and my son is acting up, this is purely hypothetical, my son is acting like me, and I come in and my wife is just tired. And I come in and I see my son disobeying, and I go and I engage him. And I deal with it, and I discipline my son in a loving and gracious way that shows him that he is loved, but shows him that what he is doing is sinning against his mother's authority. And I deal with that. My wife is then freed to just love on her kids. Because for the entire day, she has had to be law and gospel to our children. So if I come home and for a brief moment I am the law, she gets to just be the loving gospel. 
without contradicting me, she's able to just love. And we want to examine in our text a cultivating of a disposition of love. Not just the sentiment of love, not just warm feelings that we emanate out into the universe, but of genuine love and a disposition and mentality that is fixated on how can I love this person, that actively seeks those things out. In Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 8, it says, A generous man devises generous things, and by generous generosity he shall stand. And in the same way, we should seek to have a mentality and a personality and a character that is love-centered and love-oriented, that we as loving people would love and stand on love. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, it states, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The first fruit of the Spirit that is declared is love. But again, remember, we are talking about godly love, not selfish love, not love that serves my own purposes. And so returning to Hebrews, our first verse declares, let brotherly love continue. And like the Hebrews author, it is my joy as a pastor to acknowledge that I have seen much brotherly love in my own church. And indeed, even in the short time that I've gotten to spend with you, I have seen that camaraderie, that love, that affection, one for another, of bearing one another up. I've gotten to see the way in which your pastor speaks of his congregation with joy at seeing that love. And our job as pastors is often to encourage and its continuation and its growth, to foster that, to encourage its continuance. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, we see a similar declaration from Paul. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That you walk properly together, that you walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Paul here in Thessalonians is writing to the church and he says, you've done a wonderful job of loving one another, so let me tell you how to love one another all over again and tell you to do more of it. Because this is something that we never cease to grow in. And of course, when we're looking at Hebrews and it says, let brotherly love continue, it's not talking about a love for the biological family. It's not even talking about love for fellow citizens within the city or nation. These are all good things. These are all beneficial things. These are all natural things that should continue, that should grow. But in this context, that's certainly not what he's talking about. Because in this case, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people whose actual brothers and sisters, whose actual fathers and mothers, whose blood family is indeed dragging them away from the things of Christ. They're being pressured by family members to return to Judaism and to abandon Christ, to apostatize. Apostasy is a huge theme in the book of Hebrews because of this. Warning them what it means to turn away from Christ and deny Him. But these people had now been adopted into a spiritual, eternal family that superseded the natural family and was incepted by God's love for them. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 8 through 9, he talks about, don't call anyone father but your heavenly father. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, 
says, for both he who sanctifies and the ones who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. It is a greater bond than the genetic family. The family of God should be a greater bond. You should be more attached to the people that are sitting next to you who are your brothers and sisters in Christ than your extended family in biological lines. That's a bold statement, I realize. And I by no means am talking about our, we need to dissolve the nuclear family and we need to get rid of that. It's something that God instituted. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it should be there. Children were meant to be raised in households with one father and one mother who love them and raise them in fear and admonition of the Lord. Those are all good things. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm saying that those are good things. But it's more important to be part of the family of God. And our greater bond should be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I have the great privilege of having a father, a mother, and a sister who are all my family, not just genetically, but in Christ. And those bonds should be greater because they have a better foundation. When we meet together as God's people, we're meeting not on the grounds of, I'm genetically linked to you. And so we have some basic similarities and people might recognize that we are somehow related. When I come to you as my brother or sister in Christ, and this is what I love about guest preaching, by the way, I get to meet brothers and sisters I didn't know I had. I come to you and I meet you and you say that you are a Christian. And that means that I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. I bring nothing to the table. And you bring nothing to the table. But God saw fit to love me before the world began, and God saw fit to love you before the world began. And we've been made new creations. And we are sinners that meet at the foot of the cross, knowing that we brought nothing. And we're given everything. And I can look at you, and I can know that you are bought with the blood of Christ, and that means you are precious beyond anything in this world. What a beautiful way to meet together. If we really lay hold of that, how much fighting do you think we'll actually have in the church? If I come into it going, I'm nothing, and you're worth the blood of Christ, how much am I going to really be able to hold grudges against my brothers and my sisters? How much am I really going to be able to contend with them? These brothers and sisters meet as sinners at the foot of the cross. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. It says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. And then in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves Him is begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. These brothers and sisters are to love each other abidingly. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 14. It says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. 
in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And in John 13, verses 34 through 35, Christ makes that declaration that you shall be known by the love that you have one for another. Brothers and sisters, we've got plenty of opposition outside of this church. We don't have to find it within. We'll find plenty of things to contend with one another. I had a great conversation with one of the other pastors at the conference this week, right? We were talking about how do we reach out beyond our borders? How do we reach out beyond just, not just the walls of our church, but beyond the walls of our denominations, of our identities as Reformed Baptists, as confessional Reformed Baptists? How do we do that? How do we reach out further? And I told him, I said, I would love to see my, my Anglican brothers in Christ, my Presbyterian brothers in Christ, my Southern Baptist brothers in Christ, I'd love to bring them all in together and all unite and hold hands. And I said, until people start killing us, we're not really going to be able to pull that off. And he just looked at me with that look of horror that I get so often from other men of God. And I said, until people start trying to kill us, we're not going to get along on that level. Because we are. We're we're sinners. (laughs) And when you put sinners in a big group and we're all together, then we act like sinners. And we forget that part about the fact that we're sinners that meet at the foot of the cross. We have sufficient opposition outside of the church, and we need to remember that. We need to remember that our job is to love one another and let that brotherly love continue. As John Calvin says, he calls love brotherly not only to teach us that we ought to be mutually united together by a peculiar and inward feeling of love, but also that we may remember that we cannot be Christians without loving the brethren. For he speaks of the love which the household of faith ought to cultivate one towards another, as the Lord has bound them closely together by the common bond of adoption. We are children of the living God. We are adopted. And we have been loved while we were unlovable. So, How do we love? In Psalm 133, this is one of those those psalms that's worth underlining in your Bible if you do underline in your Bible. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard. The beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. How do we love one another? In, by dwelling together in unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1-8, through 8, we see that famous passage about the nature of love. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. But rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will fail. Whether there is knowledge... It will vanish away. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, 
bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. We could look also at Colossians in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Look at the beauty of the context of that verse. He starts out by reminding you, you're a sinner, saved by grace. Remember that, okay? Whenever you're going to go in and interact with other people, start there. You're a sinner, saved by grace. And he closes it with, by the way, you're also a sinner saved by grace. Because he's telling us to do difficult things. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Except for that one really annoying guy that always just won't stop talking to me after truth. No, there is no exception here. Everyone that is your brother in Christ, that is your sister in Christ, love this way. We must be united because we will find sufficient opposition outside those doors. We must be quick to forgive. We must be patient. We must be meek because Christ is our example. We are to love as Christ loves. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. If we do that, it's hard to find contention in the church. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that has bearing as well on the rest of the passage, which deals with Christ humiliating himself in order to come to this earth, in order to accomplish that work of righteousness that we might be clothed in it. Suffering the wrath of God for our salvation. And in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, we see that description from Christ. From Christ himself, where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Intrinsic to taking on the yoke of Christ and finding rest is being gentle and lowly in heart. And no allowance is given anywhere in the course of this for prejudice. How painful is that? I don't get to bring any of my prejudices into the church. I have to leave them all outside the doors. I don't get to judge other people on the basis of them making more or less money than me. I don't get to judge people on the color of their skin. I don't get to judge people by their political affiliation. Perhaps you pulled in this morning in your Prius with your brand new Bernie Sanders bumper sticker on the back. Proud as can be. And then someone else pulled up alongside of you in some giant lifted truck. They had their Republican bumper stickers all over the back. The engine is burning and blowing out all kinds of black smoke. You know it just runs on, on oil and on terrible things. The dreams and hopes of the American people are being burned in that engine right there. And you have to come in here and love that person. Or if you're the other person, you have to love them too. Because we come here not on the basis of our social class, of our own backgrounds, of our political affiliations. We come here because we are sinners saved by grace, through faith 
in Christ. And this love requires nurturing because in personal or, or corporate winters of the soul, love is prone to waste away. The church should be a greenhouse for love. As Arthur W. Pink says, yes, brotherly love is a very tender plant and quickly affected by the cold air of unkindness, easily nipped by the frost of harsh words. If it is to thrive, it must needs be carefully protected and diligently cultivated. We have to actively pursue love amongst one another, especially within these walls. And this love has enemies that we must oppose, primarily in terms of pride and self-love. Reading again from Arthur W. Pink, he says, Love suffers long. So he's going to take our passage from 1 Corinthians and he's going to compare it to what, to what we do. He says, Love suffers long, but pride is terribly impatient. Love envies not, but pride is intensely jealous. Love seeks not her own, but pride ever desires gratification and demands constant attention from others. Love bears all things, but pride is resentful of the slightest injury. Love endures all things, but pride is offended if a brother fails to greet him on the streets. We have to start by mortifying the self if we're going to love one another the way God has called us to. Indeed, the second law of the Ten Commandments, the second table of the law, promotes love. It has been said, where sin is regnant, where sin reigns, love is dormant. Now, as if I haven't given you enough, we're going to now look at loving strangers. And we want to understand the cultural context of what the author is saying when he says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. In the time period that this is written, Inns and hotels and motels and the like were rare. They were expensive, and they were often highly immoral places. So hospitality was expected culturally. It went even beyond southern hospitality. It was just expected that if someone comes into your town and you encounter them, you would invite them into your home and you would give them a place to sleep. And you can find this in a number of different places. Uh, you can actually even find it in heathen writings. Uh, if you read through Homer's works, you can actually find references to uh, just kind of this cultural norm that is hospitality. We find it in Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 33 through 34. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, and you shall, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the passage in Leviticus is really kind of broadening immediately our perspective on hospitality. Where it's written of in Hebrews, it's specifically talking about taking someone that you don't know into your home and giving them a bed and giving them a meal and, and, and helping to keep them alive, so to speak. And this was expected in the culture, but it was a particularly expected of leaders, and so it was expected of the elders in the church. This is why it's present in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, as well as in Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. And it became particularly important for the church in times of persecution. The book of Hebrews was actually written just before 70 AD, when Jerusalem would be destroyed and the people would be scattered and persecution would rise up more and more. And so it was important that the Holy Spirit is telling them, look, there's a storm coming. <laughs> you need to start working on this whole hospitality for one another thing. Because pretty soon, other brothers and sisters in Christ that you don't actually know and don't have personal relationships with are going to be fleeing for their lives. So start getting used to bunking up. Get used to spending time together. Get used to bringing people into your home. And we see that in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, as well as in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, it says, Above all things, have fervent love one for another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another 
without grumbling. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10, this concept of hospitality is applied, is expected from widows in the church. It was to, for, it's kind of this qualifications list for the widows being allowed onto the, onto the church rolls for the widows to be supported. And this would be an important principle that would recur in the time of the Reformation. We see beautiful examples of hospitality during the Reformation. When men of God, when pastors are being persecuted and pursued and run out of their own countries. In Switzerland, Switzerland was the hub for the Reformation. The gospel kept coming in and going out from Switzerland, almost in these radiating patterns, because Switzerland was one place where Christians were not being killed. And so pastors were going there and meeting together and learning from one another and fellowshipping together and growing, and then they'd go back out. And actually at Calvin's seminary, it was joked about how when you would graduate, you, your, your diploma was essentially your death certificate because Calvin, as soon as you graduated, was going to send you back into France where they kill people for preaching the, the gospel. It was a death sentence to get your certificate of ordination, and people kept doing it because they loved recklessly. But in Switzerland, they kept bringing in all of these pastors that they didn't know and that they had language barriers with and loving on them and giving them a place to stay and giving them food. And such days may come again, and we should have that disposition and awareness that the day may come wherein you have to actually open your home to sinners saved by grace and give them a place to stay because all that you have has been given to you by Christ anyway. But some of this, especially in our time and season, is no longer necessary. Just be, There are many Christians that will come through and, and visit your town, and they are perfectly capable of getting a hotel room, and you don't have to always open up your door to strangers. And in many ways, it's unwise. I certainly would not encourage the widows in my church to go down to the local square and invite the homeless people to come stay in her home. That's not what this is talking about. This is not a command to go out and bring the homeless into our home. This was about sojourners, people that were passing through and giving them a place to stay. So the question rises, how do we practice this hospitality? Or really, how do we practice love towards strangers? And we do this in various ways. We do this by housing visitors from other churches. By visiting pastors. Your, your pastor has done a phenomenal job of showing hospitality this week to a very strange man. Strangers, strangers, that's what we're talking about. We do this in works of charity. We do this in works of benevolence. One of the most beautiful ways that this is done is through missions. The way in which you send your pastor out to go share the gospel in other places is a beautiful way of showing love towards strangers, to people that you have never met, and supporting him as he does that work. In Matthew 25, verses 35 through 40, we see the way in which Christ describes this kind of labor of even just offering a cup of cold water in his name to strangers, to people that are not known by us, that we don't have any natural connection to. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore, I think I'm in the wrong passage, hang on, 25, verses 35 through 40. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was, I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did you, we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. So our question really needs to be, how can we accomplish this work? How can each of us individually seek out ways to show that kind of love? 
In 3 John, verses 5 through 8, we see a pastor, a letter written by John to a pastor who took other pastors in, men that he didn't know, and showed them love and gave them food and encouraged their hearts so that they could go back out and accomplish the work of the gospel. And we're called to love strangers because we're even called to love our enemies, as we see in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. And in our passage, we're seeing this strange little phrase about entertaining angels. And this has been, this has been interpreted in a dozen different ways, some of them more bizarre than others. He says, For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And the most immediate reference is to Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham is sitting in the door of his tent, and he invites in these, angel, these men who are walking along the way, and he discovers them to be angels, and he is blessed by them. And of course, in chapter 19, we see the way in which Lot is sitting in the gate, and he sees these men coming into the town, and he invites them into his home. And through that... God saves Lot and his family and draws them out of Sodom and Gomorrah before they're destroyed. And so that's the immediate reference that's here. And it's very possible as well that there were other instances in the early church wherein God had, had angels going around and accomplishing these works and surprising his people and blessing them through their hospitality. But what we really need to take away from this is not, okay, I need to start opening up my home because there's, there's some angels out there and I want to see if I can get one. Let me see if I can catch one and they'll bless my house and all kinds of cool things will happen. Maybe it'll like shine in bright light and I'll see wings. It'll be way cool. Start inviting in people now. Let's find the angels. That's not what this is talking about. What it's talking about is intentional hospitality and being blessed by God for our intentional hospitality. Abraham sits in the door of his tent waiting for people coming by. Lot sits in the gate, the entranceway to the city, so that he can find people that need to be shown grace. It's probably the most encouraging thing we ever read about Lot is the fact that he was sitting in the city gates and waiting for people to come by to show them love. To show love to strangers. And the heart of this command is to love strangers. In an age of communication, we are increasingly isolated. The irony of our age. We have never communicated so much and yet communicated so little without ever interacting with one another. And to be shown by... But the beautiful thing about that... And for some of you who have seen generations past, it's hard for you to believe that there's a good thing in all of that. But there really is. Because in our era, more than any other era in history, it is more shockingly Christ-like to love a stranger. It is more shockingly loving to be shown love by a stranger. For someone to engage with you and show interest in you is utterly foreign to people now. What a beautiful environment wherein we can live Christ and be a light in a world of darkness. And to that end, we must cultivate a spirit of hospitality. We must cultivate a love of strangers. A mentality wherein we look at the people that are around us in the world that we don't know and that we aren't obligated to love and go, you know what, I want to love that person. I want to show grace to them. And I want to find a way to do it. And if you do this, you will find that it opens opportunities to speak to other people about matters of eternity. And the fact that we understand the fullness of God's sovereignty, the fullness of the gospel, that we understand man's depravity and the doctrine of election, of particular redemption, these are not things that impede that process. These are things that embolden that process. Because when we go and talk to people, we are enlivened by that. 
We can go and talk to people and know that God is going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. And it's not about me. What would you do in life if you knew that you couldn't fail? Because that's what the Christian life at its core is. I can actually labor for the kingdom of God. I can pour my heart and effort into it. And I don't have to fear failure. Because it's not about what I'm trying to do. It's about what God foreordained me to do. And if I am faithful to do that labor, he will accomplish exactly his purpose. His word will not return unto him void. So that person that you have in your life that you love and that you desperately want to see come to Christ, but you're terrified of going and speaking to them because you think you're going to screw it up. I'm here to tell you, you can't actually screw it up. How cool is that? You can go and you can show love to them and speak to them about what truly matters in this life and know that what happens is exactly what God meant to happen. And God can use Balaam's donkey or even me to accomplish the salvation of a sinner when the most eloquent speaker in the world can utterly fail because it's not about my work. It's about what God sees fit to accomplish in it. And that emboldens and enlivens our evangelism. And our culture and even the church has too long forgotten the love of strangers. So let us prayerfully remember it. And finally, if you do not know Christ, if you are the stranger in the room, then I invite you to come and be loved. I hope these commands that I have given to these Christians has utterly shocked you. That someone would have the audacity to stand up here and tell people, you have to love sinners. You have to love ugly, cruel, evil people in this world. That should shock you. And I hope that it does. And I hope that you see why it is that we are able to do that. And I pray that God shows you your need for His radical love. The way in which God showed love to sinners way in which God sent His only begotten Son to suffer hell itself on the cross so that He might save people that hated Him. And I would invite you to speak to the elders that are here. If you have any questions about that, I know this man right here would be overjoyed to be able to talk to you about that kind of radical love. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your love. We thank you that you love sinners, that you love those who are estranged from you. Lord, we ask that you would give us not only boldness, but wisdom in how we might love the people that are in this world, that we might show them what your love looks like. Use us to glorify your name, to grow your kingdom. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior. Amen.